turning your copy of God's Word to Matthew uh, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be uh, finding, continuing to look at the church. Uh, we're going to look at church membership today and what is a church member, uh, Lord willing, next week, and then talk about church government, uh, church leadership, um, and Lord willing, church discipline in the weeks uh, ahead. So typically what I do on a Sunday morning service is I take a passage of Scripture and walk through it and teach it expositionally. The next few sermons are going to be a little bit more topical. Uh, we are going to have a, a kind of anchor it in the Scriptures, of course, uh, but we're going to be doing it uh, throughout the New Testament. So turn with me to Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20. I'll read, pray, and then we will dive into God's Word. And now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bond on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and loving God. Father, we thank you that you are the God of wisdom. God, we thank you that you raise up kings and you set kings down. We thank you that you are in charge of all the seasons. God, you are the only true, wise, sovereign, living God. We rejoice that we are submissive to your mighty hand this morning. And God, when we enter into your presence, we are reminded of how short we fall, how we are sinful. Uh, we have not uh, put others before ourselves. How uh, We have not focused on you as we ought. God, we come now asking that you would forgive our sins through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess them to you, and we ask that you who are faithful and just will forgive us our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we thank you for the privilege of being your people. God, we thank you for this word that we have that has been revealed to us by the Spirit of God. God, we pray for our city. We pray for Rock Hill. God, we pray that you would uh, cause this message to captivate the hearts and minds of the people in this city. God, we pray for churches now as they gather across this town to proclaim the message of Christ. God, we pray that you would bring power to your pulpits this morning. God, we pray specifically for John Chambers at Remedy. God, we pray that you would anoint his preaching. As he's working through the Gospel of Matthew, God, we pray that you would use him to, to sanctify your people. God, the people there would hear and believe your truth and be formed into the, to the likeness of Christ. God, we pray for our own hearts this morning. God, for the people gathered here, the people who I love, God. God, I pray that you would help us see the value of the church. And not just the value, but to, to, to stir our hearts, to commit to it, to serve it, to love your bride. Dear Lord, I pray that you would give power to the preaching of your word here now. 
God, I pray that the power is not in me, but the power is in your word and through your spirit. So God, I, I, I ask that I may decrease, that you may increase. God, I pray that I would preach nothing but the cross of Christ so the cross would not be emptied of its power. But God, I do pray that you would bring power. Bring power to change hearts, to change minds, to convict us by your spirit and lead us into truth. We ask this graciously, mercifully, God. Bless your people. We ask this through Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Tony uh, is a loving father uh, and a caring husband. Uh, He became a Christian at a young age. He is a faithful employee, and he's always been faithful to his local church until he started to notice a lot of problems within the congregation. He grew tired of seeing conflicts with other other Christians. Uh, It appeared to him also that the church wasted a lot of their resources. He knew a big building and a beautiful sanctuary took a lot of money to maintain, and he believed that the church would spend more of their resources to serve those in the mission field. He became discontented with what he saw, so he pulled his family out of the church. He now prefers to do his own thing with his family at home on Sunday. Susan was a devoted minister in a parachurch organization. She regularly shared the gospel with lost teenage girls in a nearby community center where she volunteered. She was not raised in the church, but came to know the Lord through a friend who lived in her hall during her freshman year of college. She loves reading the Bible and sharing that with her friends, but she's never seen the value of the local church. Now, George, he doesn't have a problem with the church, but he doesn't really get anything out of the sermon. Don't laugh. He believes that one can worship God anywhere. Uh, He finds his greatest enjoyment in playing golf with his friends on Sunday morning. They pray before the round begins and talk about family and God between shots. They even occasionally invite one of their non-Christian neighbors to join their foursome in the hopes of talking to them about Jesus. Beloved, the church has fallen on hard times. You know, I have a lot of conversations with people in our community um, who believe the Bible, who love Jesus, but do not see the value in the local church. They view church membership more as a distraction or an inconvenience rather than a biblical command. You know, and knowing their experience, what what they've experienced at church, hearing their stories, I can understand. There's plenty of unhealthy churches that exist in our day, and I can understand how someone's experience in a local body of believers can shape their perspective. They say things like, I don't need the church. Or, you can be a Christian without the church. They're correct. You can be a Christian without the church. But, can you be a faithful Christian? Or maybe another way to ask the question would be, is church membership biblical? Now granted, there are faithful Christians throughout the world uh, who may, may not have the opportunity to gather with other believers, because they may be the only Christian in their region. But we know that that is not the case in South Carolina. There are gospel preaching churches throughout our land. So this morning, you will not find in the Bible, thou 
shall be a church member. (laughs) That verse does not exist in the Bible. Uh, There's no explicit reference that an individual should be listed on a church membership role. Now, although there's not explicit references to church membership, that does not mean that church membership is not biblical. It's not only implied in the Bible, but the New Testament concept of church does not make sense outside of church membership. So, Lord willing, today we will answer the question, is church membership biblical? By looking at the biblical foundations in the Scriptures. So if you want to follow along in the bulletin provided for you, we're going to look at three things of church membership this morning. The first one is the keys of church membership. The keys of church membership. The first reference of the church in the New Testament is in Matthew 16, the passage I just read. Jesus warns his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. He then asks his disciples this question, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Uh, If you're here today, that's one of the most important questions anybody could ask you is, who do you say Jesus is? And we listen to the answer of uh, Simon Peter. Now, Simon Peter often said things he shouldn't, but you also see that Simon Peter was also the one who, who stepped up when the others didn't. He asked the crowd of the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter was the one that stepped up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And listen to these words. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So in verse 18, we see the first reference of the church in the New Testament. It's the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering. It's taken from the Hebrew word kahal. You heard that repeated again and again in that reference, uh, that 1 Kings 8, the assembly in the Hebrew scriptures. I don't think we can read too much into this statement, uh, because at this time, uh, Jesus had not yet established the church. Although when Luke writes this gospel, the church is fully established. But I think what we can at least establish, the basic meaning of the word indicates that Jesus intends his people to gather together to worship, just like they did in the Old Testament. One essential aspect of any church is the gathering of the people of God in worship. This is one of the reasons why I I welcome people. I, I say welcome to the gathering of Park Baptist Church. It's a little thing. I've so, told you before why. Because the church is not the building. We don't welcome you to, you could say that, nothing wrong with it, but we are the gathering of Park Baptist Church. We are the people. In verse 18, Jesus says, on this rock, he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The question is, what does Jesus mean by this rock? I will build my church. Is he referring to Peter? Peter representing the apostles? Peter's confession of the Christ? Or Jesus Christ himself? So in the Greek, there's a word play here uh, with, with Peter, which is Petros, and rock, which is Petra. 
So if you read it, you would said it would sound very, very similar. Uh, many scholars, uh, when they read this, they want to dis- dismiss the connection uh, to Peter um, because they think that uh, they disagree with the apostolic succession in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I don't think that you could take this passage and, and provide an a apostolic succession to the Pope as they do in Roman Catholicism. But I do think that the very natural reading of this text is to see that P- Jesus is referring to Peter. You know, we, we know that Peter was there at the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2. He gave that great uh, Pentecost sermon, preached the gospel of repentance by faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, and 3,000 souls were saved. The foundation of the church, at least in some way, was built upon the Apostle Peter. But it wasn't only built on his, but it was also, I should say, built on his profession of faith in Christ. Peter responded correctly when asked the question, who do you say that I am? When he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This confession is the foundation of the church. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the anointed one, the Messiah the Christ of God. Christ is a title. It means that he is the anointed one, the Messiah. It's not his last name, as I thought growing up, but it is the Christ. It's his title, Jesus the Christ. The only way anyone enters into fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ is confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. So to have fellowship with the church is to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.9. When Paul says to the church of God at Corinth, he says this, a specific to a specific, local, visible, identifiable congregation. He says, God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. But also, Peter could also be referred to as a representative of the apostles. He was one of the prominent leaders in the early church. And throughout the Gospels, we see this in the first 12 chapters in the, in the book of Acts. We see Peter as, as a center point for the apostles, the leader. The teaching of Peter and the rest of the apostles and the prophets were referred to as the foundation of, of, of the church. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, 19-21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So you see that Jesus, the profession of Jesus Christ is Lord, the teaching of the apostles is the foundation. We see the same thing in, in Revelation 21, 14, which says this, when John describes the new Jerusalem, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The rock in which the church will be built is on the teaching and confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. As done through Peter, the prophets, and the apostles. And we see tremendous power given to the church. Look what it says in verse 19 of chapter 16 of Matthew. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
The, this binding and loosing refers to a person's acceptance into the kingdom of God and into the church by either accepting or rejecting the teaching of the apostles on who is Jesus Christ. This is a tremendous, beloved, do you hear the tremendous responsibility? What we do here on Sunday morning has eternal consequences. It affects things in heaven today. He has given the church this responsibility to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Feel the weight of that. This is no small matter. This is the keys of the kingdom of God are given to the church as we proclaim Jesus Christ as God. I'm going to discuss this idea of loosing and binding when we look at uh, Matthew 18 here in a few weeks. But we know that it takes keys to enter into a door. Uh, if you, we, we were talking with the 60s Club this past week. There was a time not too long ago when you didn't even need a key to your house. You just left your houses open. Well, we know that our world today, you've got, you got to make sure that that house is locked. Uh, so at the end of the day, when I'm about to get ready for bed and I'm all comfortable underneath the covers, my wife will lean over to me and says, Sweetie, did you check the doors? Are they locked? No, I didn't. So I get out of bed, walk downstairs, and I'll lock up the house because it takes keys to get into a door. Now, the door to heaven was locked. It is locked into humanity because our sin against God. See, God is a holy and righteous God, and our sin has separated us from Him. We have been shut out of the kingdom of heaven. Our sin keeps us outside of God's fold. And if we stay there, we will perish. See, but God sent us His Son, giving us a door to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Listen to John chapter 10, 7 and following. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come, who came before me are thieves and robbers, but sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out to find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The only way to enter God's kingdom is through the door. And Jesus Christ is that door. The church has been given the keys of the kingdom when we tell people the good news of the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. His death paid the penalty for sin, absorbing God's wrath on the cross. And after he was dead and buried, God raised Jesus from the dead, conquering death for whoever would turn and trust him as Lord and Savior. If you are here and you have not entered the kingdom of heaven, you've not walked through the door of the Lord Jesus Christ, can I just encourage you, you can do that today. If you would just turn from your sins and trust that Jesus is the Christ. So when he asks you, who do you say I am? Respond by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So from these verses, we've looked at in Matthew 16, we can establish that Jesus wants his people to gather, the ecclesia, and to hear the teaching of Jesus Christ 
that people can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and be saved. But notice this. This was not Peter's idea. This was not the early church father's idea. This was not the Catholic church's idea. Whose idea is the church? Jesus Christ himself. It was not invented by anyone else. What did Jesus say? I will build my church. But pastor, isn't Jesus referring to the universal church here? Jesus is not saying from this passage that I should be a member of a local church. So let's answer that with this principle laid out throughout the New Testament. The second things we see here is the images of church membership. Images of church membership. The New Testament uses a variety of images to to picture what the church is supposed to be. One pastor explains it this way. God has inspired multiple images, each of which offers different perspective and none of which should so dominate our conception of the church that the depth and texture of understanding is lost. Though all are inspired, they are not all unchangeable, nor are they all as comprehensive in their presentation of the nature and mission of the church. Now hear me, none of these images negates the institutional aspects of the church, but their number and variety point to a degree of mystery in the nature of the church. Do you hear that? None of the images in the New Testament negate the institutional, corporate nature of the church. Beloved, we have never been called to God alone, but we are always called to His people. So the first image you'll see is the body of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. Paul writes about the communion that people have in the church. He says, The bread that we break is not the participation in the body of Christ, because there is one bread, we who are many, are one body. If we all partake of the one bread. And again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Then after describing how this idea of, of membership creates unity, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, many members, yet one body. Romans 12, 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members of one another. You can't read the New Testament, and explain that without the local church. Now, there is a universal aspect of the church, but there's also this specific, visible, local body of believers gathering together. Many members, yet we are one. I mean, most of the books in the New Testament are written to a, a, a visible, local, identifiable body of believers. Listen, Romans 1.17, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called according to his saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 2 Corinthians 1. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Galatians 1, 2. To the churches of Galatia. Multiple churches in one region. Ephesians 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Uh, Paul also writes to, to the church in Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica. We also see the same thing in Revelation. 
Uh, chapter 2, when, when, when John writes to the 12 the set letters to the seven churches, the body imagery is so readily used in the New Testament, it pictures the reality of one specific local body of believers who have many members but are one body. The same imagery of many individual parts, yet one collective whole, can be seen in other images. Listen, the church is a building with many stones built into a house. Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. The church is one temple with many bricks built into the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16. You know, the church also is referenced multiple times as the people of God, as similarly identified in the Old Testament. You know, there are many images that the New Testament uses but you bring them all together, none of them negate the corporate nature of the church, but they all foster the corporate aspect. The people who disregard the local church, disregard the entire thrust of the New Testament's teaching on the church. As one pastor noted, Christianity is personal, but never private. There's a corporate nature where we show the world that we are the true people of God. There are also several places you, you would appear there's actual list of people identified with the local church. You know, because the, the, the argument is, is that you don't need to have your name on a membership roll. Maybe, okay? But listen to what Paul says to Timothy, a young pastor. In 1 Timothy 5, he told him to keep a record of the widows in the church. I mean, was he to remember that? Write it down. You know, these are, these are women, that, the widows, that we are, are called to be responsible to care for because they don't have children or grandchildren to care for them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul encouraged the church to put out a sinning member of the church. Now, how do you put someone out unless you know who's in the church? Same thing we see in Matthew 18. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul refers to the majority of the people who inflicted a punishment on a sinning member. How can there be a majority unless you have a whole? This idea is all throughout the New Testament. And even God himself apparently has a list. He has his own membership role. Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Beloved, church membership is biblical. It's not explicit, but it is, in very, it is indeed very biblical. You cannot explain certain verses and encouragements and warnings in the New Testament without the local church. Now, most of you are saying, Pastor, I know. <laughs> I know the, the value of the local church. You do, but not everyone does. There's a generation coming up behind us who does not see the value in the local church. If you don't have tools in your belt, in the Word of God, to show them what God says about the local church, how will they know? How will they know of the value that Christ has put into His church? It's rooted and established in the mind of God. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Why? The church is precious to God. We see this in Acts 20, 28. Why is it precious to God? Paul writes, because through Jesus Christ, it was obtained with his own blood. 
Jesus Christ spilled His blood, purchasing us. So when we devalue the church, we are devaluing what God has done through His own blood. But not only is it church membership biblical, it's also a blessing, which brings us to our last point, the blessings of church membership, the blessings of church membership. I think the reading of the New Testament says this, that you should commit yourself to a specific, visible, local church. And one of the reasons why you do that is the blessing that comes through church leadership. You know, church leaders are committed to care for the people that God has entrusted to this church. Paul writes that in in Acts chapter 20, that the overseer, the Holy Spirit, has made myself and, and Brother Bill overseers of this church. The Holy Spirit did that. He charges us to pay attention to and to protect the flock of God. There's teaching out there that is false. And if you believe false teaching, you will go to a false hope. So God has charged leaders to care and love you specifically. You know, as elders are called uh, to protect the sheep, we're also called to be examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5 says this. Committing to a local church also just allows the, the, the church leaders who we're going to be held responsible for. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. This verse scares me. This verse scares me. Why? It's because one day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to be held accountable how I love the sheep of Park Baptist Church. How did you protect them? How did you love them? How did you guard their souls? So church membership is a blessing to me because it knows who I have to care for. But there's a lot of people who visit. If you visit, we are blessed that you're here, right? But I'm not called, I'm not going to be held accountable for your soul. You know, I'm, I'm held accountable for the people of God that God has brought and connected to this church. As fathers are going to be held accountable for their children. Pastors are going to be held accountable for their people. It's a great blessing, but it's a great responsibility. The second thing you see here is that it, it shows Christians who are you called to obey. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Christian, obey your leaders. What leaders are they referring to? Who are your leaders if you are not connected to a local church? Any someone, anyone in authority, any Christian who has prominence, who have knowledge, who has a, a reputation, are you called to submit to them? Well, no, you're called to submit specifically to the pastors of your local church. Now, we don't like to talk about authority, do we? Authority, submission, obedience, those aren't fun words in our world. But beloved, we're not called to live like our world. We're called to live under the authority of God's word. And God's word says, obey your leaders. Hold us accountable. You know, I can almost hear the the things going off in your head. You know, we could go caveat after caveat. Well, pastors aren't perfect. Amen. (laughs) The church has problems. Amen. The pastors are too young. Amen. But without church leadership, without church membership, how do you fulfill that biblical command? Remember, the question is, 
is, can you be a faithful Christian? God says, submit to your leaders, obey them. Because my job is to love and care for you, to speak hard words, to speak words of love, to words of grace. Why? So I can protect you, so that when you close your eyes in death, you will open them in glory. Life is preparing us for the next life. And if you don't have people guarding you specifically and caring for you in a specific way, how do you know you're going to be protected? I know that Elizabeth, John David, and Olivia are going to be protected. Why? Because I'm their dad. I have to lay my life down for my kids and for my wife. I'm going to protect them from all the evil in this world the best I can. That's my job as a pastor for your souls. That's Bill's job. That's my job. It's a deacon's job. I get a little fired up <laughs> about church membership uh, because I love it. Because it's not just you know, a blessing to church leadership and you know, the responsibility we have to care for one another. Guys, it's just a blessing. You know, I think um, we have a great opportunity when we love each other in a very particular way, we show the world that Jesus Christ is real. I mean, we know that. Jesus said that in John 13. By this, love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you love one another. When people come into our, to our community and they feel welcome, they feel a love of each other, we are showing them Jesus Christ is real. We're clarifying with the world what it means to be a Christian, what it doesn't mean to be a Christian. Our world is confused. How many people do you know have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, but they don't live it and they think they're okay? Well, the church's goal and design is that you can't make, we don't want you to make false professions. Now, we can't guarantee that people in this church, even now, don't have a real, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's our job to protect you from that, from self-deception. But it's also just a blessing. Man, the church is a family. You know, I could talk about blessing after blessing that I personally have experienced about being part of the body of Park Baptist Church. I mean, it is an absolute blessing to be able to have someone who is 60 years, my, my, my senior, love, love me so much to give me a hug, look me in the eye and give me words of encouragement uh, to someone to come and, and, and to pick up my, my, my children to show them the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as a church member, we have the great privilege to extend our love to one another, but we also have the great privilege to receive that love from one another. Now, I can't give you, I don't have the time, to list every single blessing the church has, but do me a favor. Take 10, 15 minutes this afternoon. Sit down with your family and just write out the blessings of the church. Just write them out. Just see how many you can get to, the blessings of you being part of the local church. And then after you write those blessings out, pray that our church, the people in this church would feel those blessings, that we would love love one another well. The arguments that most people give for church membership are usually not shaped by the scriptures. They're usually shaped by their own experiences negatively they've experienced in the local church. Well, we have the opportunity to love each other well that when people enter into our community, they don't have that bad taste in their mouth of the church. That they see the value of the local church. I would just say this in closing. You know, as a church, we have to raise the standards of church membership. You know, we have to have high expectations for the Lord's church. And I think we are fine, many churches are fine with with people remaining as members of the church who have not 
darken the doors in years. You're fine to have people remain on your membership roles if they're living a life that is contrary to God. Beloved, we must protect God's name in how we live and operate as a church. Listen to Romans 2.24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When the church does not reflect God well, we make the name of God blasphemed among the lost. We have to fight for the reputation of our God and how we live and love one another. So we commit to an imperfect church. Why? Because it's precious to God. Because Jesus Christ spilled his own blood to purchase us so we can be a body. The church is God's idea. It is precious to him. Will it be precious to you? Let's pray.